Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. I'm Sinead DeFries, your host, and I am joined by my boyfriend, Mr. Nils Davey. Hello. Hey, babe. <laughs> Are you excited? Yes. Uh, I've been writing the story diligently. I read a book. <laughs> I read a book, babe. Did you actually read a book, or did you just read someone's review of a book? No, I read the freaking book. The whole book. Not the whole book, no. no. you didn't read a book. No, I read the book um, as much as I needed, and then I read Case Files. I'm like a legit crime <laughs> <laughs> reporter. Where did you find these Case Files? On the internet. Yeah. You can find everything on the internet. The oh. internet is a beautiful place. Yeah. This story is so unbelievably convoluted and insane, and I believe you are going to lose your freaking mind once I get into it. It is currently 1.05 a.m., and I have been filming all day, and Nils has been working all day, but we are here. We are here because we are running out of time <laughs> to, let the, to get this episode done. All right? First. Yes? Did you see that Jeff Bezos went into space today? You told me that yesterday. Did you see his spaceship? No, I didn't. You should look at a picture of it real quick. Right now? Mm-hmm. Oh, no. <laughs> Why would he do that? <laughs> oh, I love this tweet. Congrats to Jeff Bezos on his successful rocket launch and also for totally not overcompensating for something. <laughs> it's definitely a giant penis. Um, yeah, the rocket looks like a giant ween. Like a ginormous ween. That is kind of amazing. It even has a head. And the windows on it really add the detail uh -huh. needed. Yeah. Anyway. Anyways. Irrelevant. Um, no, but I do like that. Thank you. You're welcome. On Friday, March 21st, 1980, Howard Witkin left his office at the Havlin Witkin Picture and Mirror Corporation, hopped into his brand new red Corvette, and drove a few miles down the road to his townhouse in Santa Clara, California. Furry 80s. Everything about this is furry I know, 80s. I know. I made sure to note the make and model of every <laughs> yeah. single car in this story. You're gonna love it. The father of three would have the weekend to himself, despite telling his kids that he'd be heading out for a getaway to Carmel with friends. In reality, Howard didn't want his children to know just how lonely he really was. Oh. After a bitter divorce, his ex-wife, Judith, had secured custody of the couple's three children, and they all lived together halfway across the country in an uppity suburb of Flint, Michigan, called Grand Blanc, nicknamed Kirkridge in the Hills. Whatever the F that means. I don't know what that means. <laughs> it just sounded real fancy, so I put it in there. But that's what it was. Um, the point is that Judith was not struggling after her divorce from Howard, and to be fair, neither was Howard. He served as a manager in the family glass and mirror business. That's why his last name is in the company name. But as they say, money does not buy happiness. Howard missed his kids terribly, and according to his friends, he wasn't handling the bachelor life very well at all. Howard partied a bit too hard for his own good, with the local casino being his go-to spot. Wait, he's in... Santa what? Clara, California? You know the, the local casino? <laughs> what fucking casino is that? You know the local casino in Santa Clara? And you know that, uh, that new red Corvette I told you about? Yeah. He'd already crashed it right into his own garage after a recent night out. That's fucking sick. Yeah. <laughs> so the poor guy had it bad. And considering what life had been like while he and Judith were still married, this was very, very, I guess, different, you could say. At just 19 years old, Howard and Judith had married in 1968, and all seemed so, so well between the two young lovebirds. The couple had moved into a beautiful home together after Howard's father and the co-founder of the family glass business, Harold Witkin, had gifted the newlyweds a house in Los Gatos in San Jose. Mm, okay, so it is near San Francisco. Must mm -hmm. be nice. Must be nice. <laughs> they had a lot of friends, both being very active in their Jewish community, and Judith had spent a lot of time at San Jose's Temple Emmanuel, volunteering whenever she could at fundraisers and whatnot and meeting lots and lots of new friends. New friends, like Bob oh. Singer. Oh, no. <laughs> For Judith, married life had not quite turned out the way that she'd expected, and according to her, that was because of Howard, naturally. She'd made claims that Howard drank too much and spent way too much time gambling with his friends, which, based on his lifestyle later on, 
might actually be true. This all seems very plausible. Yeah, but regardless, Judith was not down with Howard's evolving lifestyle, and she was just not having any part of his partying ways. Bob, on the other hand, Bob Singer also lived in a wealthy neighborhood with his wife and three kids, but he was sober and also a square, and Judith was definitely having that. Honestly, if I think about it, I feel like Bob is a much better match for Judith because if you have certain things you're never going to be down with, like lots of drinking, drug use, partying, and you're with someone who drinks a lot and does drugs recreationally and gambles, and then you meet someone who's sober and lives this perfect life, like if that's not a bad thing that yeah. you realize your husband just isn't the match for you. Do we know about Bob's wife? Is Bob's wife a gambling degenerate <laughs> and then they just switch it up? No, they don't go into any detail in any of the articles I read about Bob's wife, but at the time that Judith's marriage with Howard is suffering, Bob's marriage with his wife is also suffering. She's Very at the conveniently. Casino. She's just hammered at the yeah. casino. Honestly, I was thinking about this. I'm a goody two-shoes in a lot of ways, like Judith, in, in different ways, okay? Mm. I'm a goody two-shoes in the sense that mm. I like following the rules. Yeah, but you drink a bottle of wine a day. Hey. A bottle of wine a day. You shut up. <laughs> I'm saying I like following the rules, okay? So if I was with someone who constantly broke rules... Don't look at me. I'm not. You don't break rules. You are just as goody as I am. Maybe a little bit less. I don't like breaking rules. I think rules make the world go round. You're insane. <laughs> and I cannot imagine being with someone who broke rules every day. Like, I, that would drive me crazy. It would make me so anxious and scared until I eventually left as well. Maybe you would loosen up and be less uptight. What are you trying to say? <laughs> Maybe I should break more rules. I dare you. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't dare you. I immediately take that back. <laughs> All right. So obviously it makes sense that Judith and Howard's marriage ends in divorce. And as fate would have it, Bob and his wife's relationship was on the rocks too, like I said. So 10 years after Judith and Howard had first said I do, their divorce was finalized and Judith married an also newly single Bob Singer. And then they moved to Michigan. There, Bob Singer bought a franchise restaurant called the onion croc. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? In Flint. Yeah, like a croc. Not croc. a crocodile. No. <laughs> Is the pot made of an onion? No. So, the onion croc was actually a very popular restaurant in the 70s and 80s. It was a soup restaurant, obviously. You know what? In Illinois, a lot of people like soup. In the Midwest, a lot of people well, like soup. Well, maybe if it's cold. In England, I... In, if it's cold. <laughs> sorry. If it's cold. No, not the soup. If the weather's cold. Oh, like, no one's like crazy for gazpacho. I was just saying, you're like, you know what? Maybe people like soup when the soup is served cold. <laughs> I don't like gazpacho. Nobody does. Yeah. Well, Italian's pretty When good. I used to work at Bottega Louie downtown, gazpacho was like a delicacy and why, all the rich people would come in. Why you always drop in Bottega Louie? Because they had like very... There's very specific <laughs> references that make sense. But all the rich people would come in and they'd be like, I'll have a bowl of your gazpacho. And it was poured at the table in the bougiest way possible. And it was like ice cold soup. It was disgusting. I feel like you got all of your high-end cultural references from the one time you worked at Bottega Louie. Okay, well, also keep this in mind. I worked at Bottega Louie as one of my first jobs after coming from the Midwest, where I lived for like over a decade of my life. You didn't have a job at the Onion Croc? No. All right, so I looked up the Onion Croc, okay? It was a very popular restaurant in the 70s and 80s. They ended up closing their last restaurant in 1989, but now they have a manufacturing facility. But at the time, the Onion Croc had a menu consisting of six soups, three salads, and three sandwiches. Nothing fried ever. I like how small the menu is. Gordon Ramsay would love that. Yes. The first year the Onion Croc opened, it was so successful that two more restaurants were opened within months of the initial establishment. So it might not sound like much, but Bob Singer made a very smart move buying into this soup conglomerate, whatever you call it. I rarely ever crave soup. But while I was doing this deep dive into this soup restaurant, I have not craved soup as much. It's 150 degrees outside. I usually crave your stew around winter and I crave my dad's soup all the time because my dad makes dope soup. But it's so hot outside that I've not craved soup in so long. But like reading all of these soups, they have like a cheesy soup and they had an onion soup. And I was like, dude, an onion soup? No. I haven't had onion soup in forever. No, I don't want that. But every few years, an onion soup hits just right. No one's coming near you if you're eating onion soup. Whatever. We're in a domestic I'm relationship. I'm not coming near you if you're eating onion soup. I don't soup. care. You're stuck with me for the rest of your life. Um, I bore your child. If you make soup tomorrow, I'm going to be really upset. I'm absolutely not going to make soup. We are literally dying of heat stroke. 
Okay. Anyway, so Judith and Bob are living it up in Michigan with all their soup money, and Howard on the outside appears to be living it up in Santa Clara with all his glass money. So, of course, this is where shit goes off the rails. On Sunday, that same weekend, two of Howard's friends made their way to his Santa Clara townhouse. They hadn't been able to reach him all weekend, and because maybe they knew how much he was struggling or just because they're great friends or both, they became worried. Approaching Howard's front door, it was immediately clear that something was very, very wrong. There was blood all over Howard's front porch, and his front door was riddled with bullet holes. What? Yeah, riddled. And I actually used it correctly this time. Just wait. What? They immediately called the police. Captain Wayne Britt and Sergeant Steve DeRosset were the first authorities on scene. When they entered the townhouse, the horror of whatever had happened on Howard's front doorstep had noticeably made its way inside his home. Although the TV was on, there was no sign of Howard. There were signs of a violent attack because bullet holes covered the walls, including two bullets that had been shot into a Picasso that hung in his front hallway. I'm sorry, what? A real Picasso? A signed Picasso. Like a print or a painting? A signed yes, Picasso. A painting or a print? A painting. A signed Picasso. Sure? That is what that is what the book said. So fucking homie took his glass and mirror money, bought a Picasso. That was signed. Also, was Picasso mm. signing his paintings yeah. other than just his name? What are they why would they say signed? Well that's why I mean if they say signed. Does that I'm, mean it's the original? No, that means I, I would imagine it's a print that had been signed. By who? Picasso. Picasso. But like, so he does a painting or an illustration and then they print like a hundred of them and mm-hmm. he signs them all to make them like worth a lot more money than yeah. just a print. When was Picasso alive? Was oh, it in the 1800s? Don't ask me that shit. I don't know. We'll cover Didn't this. Did you go to art school? We'll cover this on my podcast. Is it art? <laughs> question mark. I like that it's called Is it art? Question mark. Oh, yeah. Question mark. Question <laughs> So, there was also a bloody trail that led from the front door all the way to Howard's kitchen, and unfortunately, that is where they discovered a body. At 32 years old, Howard Whitkin had been murdered. 17 shots had been fired in total. Multiple had hit Howard in his chest, his arms, his stomach. His left lung had been hit twice. I read that it collapsed. His hands and elbow had bullet fragments in them, suggesting that he tried to shield himself as his shooter fired over and over at him on the porch and then through the front door hitting Howard, who at that time was desperately trying to get away from his assailant. The trail of blood showed that he'd actually survived long enough to make it all the way to his kitchen, but if he was trying to get to a phone, maybe to call for help, tragically, he would never, ever make it that far. That's dark. That is so awful. Sounds like a hit, dude. That's like mental. Howard had been dead since Friday, and it was now Sunday, so serious time had already been lost. The detectives wasted no time trying to get ahead while already behind by canvassing Howard's neighborhood. Despite living in a cul-de-sac, it seemed like no neighbors had witnessed a thing. A couple neighbors claimed hearing what sounded like a car backfiring. A car backfiring yeah, just like 17 a hundred times. <laughs> I lived in a cul-de-sac for a minute in Illinois. You are literally on top of your neighbors. It is shocking maybe to me. Maybe things are different in Santa Clara. In the 80s? I thought maybe because Santa Clara, this neighborhood that he was living in, was a nice neighborhood. People don't immediately think... Murder. There's a murder happening. Maybe they had a silence. They didn't. How do you know? Oh, I know. Oh, okay. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah. Luckily, once it became known that something had actually happened and that something was a brutal murder, one neighbor followed his better judgments and decided to give authorities a call. He may not have been around at the time of Howard's murder, or if he was, he hadn't seen or heard anything to raise an alarm but he had seen something literally the day before. The previous Thursday evening, this neighbor was on his way home, but before he reached his house, he recalled seeing an unfamiliar car, a 1970s gold Chevy circling the cul-de-sac very, very slowly. He was so weirded out by that, that instead of pulling into his driveway, he decided to follow the car out of the cul-de-sac and down the block. Nosy neighbor. Love that nosy neighbor. Long enough to take down the license plate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He reported to the police the license plate, which was VNM530. 
Neither detective working the case took that call because they were knee-deep in the investigation at that point. So when Captain Britt later saw that report, he decided to give the neighbor a call. But after multiple attempts to reach the man, he had no luck. Doing his due diligence, he still ran the plate, but he got no hits. So he moved on. Yeah, fuck it. Yeah. (laughs) Meanwhile, I literally read the article and was like, so he tucked the note away. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Howard's family were preparing to lay him to rest, and that brought Judy and Howard's children, along with Judy, obviously, and their stepfather, Bob Singer, to town. When Captain Britt discovered that the whole fam was in town for the solemn affair, he seized the opportunity to find out as much as he could from the one person who, at one time, was incredibly close to their victim. That person was, of course, Howard's ex-wife, Judy. And Britt had a lot of questions for Judy, namely about Howard's connection to drugs. You see, while searching Howard's house after the murder, an alarming amount of drugs had been discovered. $60,000 worth of cocaine, to be exact. if If you own a mirror business, you're gonna get into cocaine. $60,000 yeah, in the 80s. Mirrors and cocaine go together that's like uh, bread and cheese. That's, okay. such a, that's such a me reference. <laughs> that was the sweetest reference ever. <laughs> Mr. Maybe I should break more rules. <laughs> I, I like bread and cheese like a lot. That's hilarious. Now the cocaine that they discovered had been stuffed into a sock and hidden in the floor. Which seems super I'm legit. How it fucking rolls. I, why was he depressed? His life is amazing. Well, he's depressed because he has three kids that he doesn't get to see because they live in Michigan. Yeah, but fuck that. He's high on coke and he's hey, family. You <laughs> have a child. A you are a father. Yeah, but if you left me for someone else and took my kid <laughs> and my other fake two kids and I went out and bought a Corvette and got $60,000 of coke, I, I don't think I'd miss you until I ran out of coke. Not fake two kids, three kids. No, I'm saying like if it was you and me. If we magicked two more kids, and then you took oh, them I away. Oh, I see. You know? Yeah. We don't have Fake two more kids, two kids. Do we? <laughs> No, we don't. Not yet. No. <laughs> Not yet. Mm-mm. So the t- detectives were like, all right, okay. So they pressed Howard's friends, and then they discovered that it was known that Howard didn't just use cocaine recreationally, but he also sold it. Obviously, there's $60,000 worth. Yeah. So naturally, police are like, Aha, obviously, this has to be in some way connected to Howard's death. You would think so. And you can't, you can't fault them for that. It makes sense. He's murdered. They find $60,000 worth of cocaine hidden in a sock in his floor. It's a solid lead. There's 17 <laughs> bullets fired, okay? Multiple have hit Howard. This looks like some sort of crazy, weird, drug-related hit. So they began pursuing that avenue, and they wanted to find out as much as they could about Howard's past with drugs and maybe even drug trafficking. If this had been going on for some time, then Judy might just know something about it. But if Judy had any idea why her ex-husband would have that much cocaine stuffed into his floor, she didn't let on to police. She told police that her and Howard had very different views on drug use. So if he was selling, he wasn't going to tell her about it. She also couldn't name a single person who she thought might have had any motive to kill her ex. Overall, she gave police nothing. Until detectives asked her about Howard's state of mind leading up to the murder. Friends of Howard had told police that he seemed to be struggling, maybe even depressed, and that was due in large part to Judy and their kids. When Judy heard this, she confirmed that, yes, Howard was upset because she was in the process of taking legal action against her ex-husband after he proposed taking their children on a houseboat for a fun family vacation during an upcoming visitation period that he had. I guess he planned to visit the kids in Michigan over the upcoming summer for up to, like, 30 days. She first told the police he was planning to come for nine days or 30 days, (laughs) which immediately I was like, I'm sorry, what? And during that time that he had his scheduled visit with his children, he wanted to take them to a lake near Yosemite for a really fun, like, getaway. Yeah. But their youngest child was two and a half at the time, and Judy was horrified (laughs) at the idea of Howard being alone with a child so young on a boat. She's so fucking square, dude. I know. According to Judy, since the couple had been divorced since the child was only an infant... She just didn't think it was appropriate for the child to be so young, who had not spent that much time with her father, to be separated from their mother, especially in that way, like on a boat. (laughs) Her defense, which I can't absolutely disagree with, in one way, (laughs) she is saying the child was an infant when they divorced. The child barely knows 
his father. But whose fault is that? It is still his child. They have already set legal precedence that allows him to have visitation periods. But not on a boat. It was allowed. That's why she was taking legal action, because she had to take legal action to prevent that, because clearly, if she didn't, it would be allowed. And he would be able to say, hey, it's my time. I can do whatever I want with them. There wasn't any... The court didn't find Howard unsuitable to take care of his kids or take take I mean, his kids out on vacation. I guess, she just had been granted main custody. I guess... Right. I guess so. Turns out he's like a drug-dealing, gambling degenerate. Right. But... She doesn't know she that. She didn't know that. Right. So, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, hey, she didn't know that, though. So... Coke Fiend Howard should be able to take his two-year-old. I mean, as a parent, I have to feel like it's just, it's still not fair that he would be told, you can't take your kids on vacation because the kid doesn't know you. Like, that hurts. That sucks. Yeah. But, yes. Is she wrong? I don't know. I guess that's like a moral debate. She's an asshole. She cheated on him, left him, and then won't let him take his kids on a boat. Right. So all of that kind of seems like normal divorce stuff. In a bitter divorce where there are kids involved and the two people can't agree. So they're fighting. And Captain Britt's like, all right, cool. Thanks so much for your time, Judy. And then he and Sergeant DeRossett got right back to work to piece together the link between Howard's cocaine stash and his murder. Meanwhile, another San Jose police sergeant was about to break the case wide open. He'd been on the phone with a friend who just so happened to be a police officer in Flint, Michigan. According to the Flint cop, He just had a conversation with a man named Kevin McCarthy. And Kevin just so happened to be the general manager of a popular soup restaurant called The Onion Crock. He'd been the one that helped Bob Singer open the Flint location. It was a franchise, remember? McCarthy told the police officer that Bob had very recently approached him with a proposition. Help me arrange the murder of my (laughs) wife's (laughs) ex-husband. McCarthy actually considered the offer enough to join Bob in the search for a hitman. So Bob took the manager to the Aladdin, which sounds like a club that I need to go to. Sounds like a strip club to me. In Flint. The place was shady as F, and Bob was like, hey, you know what? I bet there's a hitman here. I don't mind that thinking, actually. I feel like that's the most basic thing. But I also think, what was the guy's name? Kevin McCarthy. Kevin. Kevin's probably like, I want some drinks. Let's go. (laughs) Right? Yeah. McCarthy would later recall Bob's strange behavior that night. He was on one and suggested that the manager not say the word murder as they propositioned a potential hitman at the club, but instead, if he did meet one, to say, quote, tell him you need someone to take a long walk off his short Oh, yeah. (laughs) What a a freaking dweeb. (laughs) I think that was That is so lame. I think that was a more popular phrase though in like the nineties. No, I think it was a more popular phrase in like the forties. Someone definitely said that to me as an insult in like the playground. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, babe. Tell someone we're gonna make him sleep with the fishes. Yeah. Anyways, Kevin was like, uh, okay, you fucking loser. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> anyways, the entire situation became way too much for Kevin McCarthy. I blame Bob's weird ass lingo. He's probably like, okay, listen, listen, Buster. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to do? See, we're going to rub him out. <laughs> exactly. He's like, you need to calm the F down. He's like. I, can't, I cannot deal with you and all of this. I'm out. I'm out of this. <laughs> Honestly. He probably tried to put the whole ordeal out of his mind, hoping that Bob would too. But Bob really wouldn't let him forget it. Uh, he, went, he went for it. He kept telling him over and over that, you know what, no worries. I got it handled. I got it handled. According to McCarthy, he had never really taken the idea that seriously. He even lied to Bob, saying that, hey, don't worry, I went back to the Aladdin looking for a hitman. I just couldn't find one. I really want to go to this bar. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) but he didn't go back to the Aladdin. (laughs) He just told him that to appease him. So when Bob Singer eventually stopped bringing it up, he was probably happy, Kevin was, to never have to talk about this shit ever again. That is a workplace conundrum. <laughs> I just love that it was noted that like later on, Kevin was like, dude, he was saying the weird. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I just can't even imagine, like, listening to that <laughs> story. So Kevin's like, all right, we're never going to talk about this again. It's over. And what wishful thinking that was. On March 18th, so three days before Howard's murder, Kevin McCarthy returned to work after taking the previous day off. March 17th oh. is? I don't know. St. Patrick's Day. Is it? Yeah. McCarthy? He's oh, yeah. He's like, hammered. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have a family obligation to celebrate, <laughs> to observe St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, so he took St. Patrick's Day off, and then he goes back to work the next day. Upon his return, he was greeted by Bob Singer, who let him know that while McCarthy was out, he had taken it upon himself in the 24 hours to fire their cook, Gary Oliver. Oliver was a ninth grade dropout who had started at the Onion Crock as a busboy before being quickly promoted, as was reported in the articles, to cook. Immediately, Kevin McCarthy was weirded out because it was his job to do all the hiring and firing. But somehow, Gary Oliver had been fired. He was like, all right, I don't know, Bob's a weird guy. <laughs> yeah, no shit. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Obviously, we know Howard was murdered just a few days later, so Kevin McCarthy was probably like, well, that can't be a coincidence. But because Bob hadn't brought up the murder plot to Kevin lately, what the F did he actually know, right? I feel for Kevin McCarthy in this story. <laughs> this is what you get for initially agreeing to consider murdering someone or even finding somebody to murder someone, okay? He probably thought it was a fucking joke. He just wanted to go to the Aladdin. Don't we, don't He's we like, all. drinks are on Bob at don't, the Aladdin tonight. Don't we all want to go to <laughs> And Bob was like, you know what? <laughs> And he was like, all right, no, this is a bad idea. There's going to be some good, like, chef murder references here. He's going to fry him up. (laughs) Muggsy, I got an idea. Make him soup. Yeah, I just, I cannot. Literally, I cannot. All right, so, Bob and Judy then left for the funeral, obviously. And conveniently, during that time, Gary Oliver, the fired cook, made a visit back to the Onion Crock to pick up his paycheck. He'd been fired, but he's like, listen, I got fired, but I still need my paycheck. Yeah. McCarthy recalled that Oliver was super tan. <laughs> I can't. I can't. This is... You know, it's all so ridiculous. <laughs> Hasn't he gone for two days? How did he get so tan No, in two Gary days? Oliver... We don't know how Gary Oliver... How long Gary Oliver has been gone, remember? McCarthy had stopped hearing about Bob... Well, from we, Bob about the murder do. plot. We do. St. Patrick's Day, March 16th. Oh, that's true. And when did homie get murdered? <laughs> Please tell me it was On the like, 21st. I, so it's been a few days. Joe, Bob's like, hey, by the way, yesterday, March 17th, I murdered, I mean, I murdered, <laughs> I fired, <laughs> that's a Freudian slip, I fired Gary Oliver, okay? He's fired. He's not coming back. On the 15th. Now, on the seven, that was on the 17th. Now, on the 21st, Howard's murdered. And so, Gary Oliver has not been in the restaurant since before the 17th. Okay, he, he must have gone hard on his tan, though. Like, hey, come to the West Coast, murder a few people, work on your tan. <laughs> So, McCarthy sees Gary Oliver come in. He's super tan. He has really nice clothes. Okay. And uh, he went to open his paycheck, all right? In front of Kevin McCarthy. Hold on. Like an idiot. Hold on. Mm -hmm. Is it like (laughs) $20,000? Kevin McCarthy is literally watching this all unfold while Gary opens the envelope. Gary made three twenty-five an hour working as a cook. Inside his envelope were like stacks and stacks of <laughs> Benjamins. So fucking stupid. So stupid. All right. <laughs> so then he was <laughs> Kevin McCarthy's Wait. like, huh? I wonder if <laughs> why wouldn't he just pay him? Why would Gary Oliver open the paycheck at the restaurant? Well, he's a dropout. This whole thing is so stupid, just, and it only gets stupider. He likes to do it by the book. And honestly, <laughs> I hate to tell you that what you're thinking is completely wrong, because this story just gets weirder and weirder by the second, mm-hmm. all right? So Kevin McCarthy sees this all unfold, and he's like, all right, Gary Oliver was fired. He's super tanned. <laughs> he's got nice clothes. Mm. He makes three twenty-five an hour. Why does he have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars in his envelope that's just supposed to contain his paycheck. It all sounds extremely weird, all right? Also, I read an article that said that a few days prior, while Kevin McCarthy was still very weary of Bob Singer, who had just (laughs) a couple weeks before approached him to help him find him a hitman, he heard him on the phone saying he needed to get a car. 
And then when Gary Oliver came into the restaurant, he was like, oh, you won't believe what happened. My car blew up. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't real. This is not real life. It's all real. I read the case files. (laughs) (laughs) It's so ridiculous. And so then Kevin McCarthy's like, this cannot all be a coincidence. So on April 1st, he went to the police. April 1st. Yeah, April 1st. He goes to the police and he tells the police officer this whole story. That police officer then calls that San Jose cop who he's friends with, and the San Jose cop then alerts the detectives working on Howard Whitkin's case. It's one of the few instances of cross-departmental communication. Yeah. Like I said, it was now April, so when this got back to Detectives Britt and DeRosset, it was like a godsend. The drug theory had been going nowhere, and now it made sense. Why? They immediately began looking into Bob Singer, but Singer had no criminal record. They also tried all the motels near Howard's home to see if anyone had checked in with, like, a Michigan ID, but no luck on that front either. I mean, it's, I still don't know the motive. Stay tuned, babe. Yeah. That's when Detective Britt remembered the tucked away license plate number in his drawer. He decided to try and reach the neighbor who had called in the tip in those first few days, the one that he couldn't get a hold of, and he finally got him on the phone. They confirmed the license plate together, and the neighbor also mentioned that the plate was black with yellow lettering, like an old school California plate, like the one you have on your Nova. No, it's a blue plate. It's 1970s. Wait, black plates from the plate? 60s. I have a black plate on the Jeep now, but I had to pay for it. Like oh, I, I like the blue plate though too. Yeah. So so that's why he was like, "Hey, the plate that I saw is black with yellow lettering. That's what old like back in the it's day." Like the 1960s. He's like, if, if "That's what I'm saying. That's what I remember about it." And so he, he was like, "Weird." Did he also say like the guy driving had a great tan and nice clothes? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but when Brett had run the plate, remember, no hits had come up. But then something clicked. Upon inspecting Howard's home after his murder, he'd noticed how yellow Howard's front porch light was. A random thought that now could be the key to why the neighbor had seen yellow lettering. Mm. So I figured that either it wasn't dark enough for the neighbor to have his headlights on, so when he followed the car to get the license plate, he couldn't really make out a color. He had mentioned that he was returning from work, remember? So at the time... It was probably afternoon or early evening. My other thought was that if it was completely dark, then maybe his headlights projected a similar yellowish color, which to him confirmed the lettering was yellow. While, in fact, it was actually white, Mm. but just looked yellow Mm -hmm. under that really yellow lighting. Sure. Michigan license plates were black with white lettering, so Detective Britt was piecing this all together, and he decided to rerun the plate because the first time he ran it, he ran it in California. Yeah, yeah. So when he ran it through the Michigan database, he got a hit. A 1970 or 71 two-door gold Chevy Malibu. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice car. Registered to a man named Dennis Liquia. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, huh? When I read that. I was like, oh my, are you serious? Who the hell is Dennis? <laughs> Dennis would later confirm that he'd put his name down on the title of the car or it was his car. No one ever specifies, and there are conflicting stories. But I was led to believe that it was actually his car, and he had sold the car to Gary Oliver. Gary Oliver. Yes. Gary Oliver promised to return the car. It was like a loan. He's like, I'll give you some money, loan me the car, I'll give it back to you when I'm done. I mean, that's an interesting technique. Right. He would have been smart to take the plates off. When he murdered someone. Well, you know what? Gary Oliver is an idiot. Well, a high school dropout, right? Yeah. Now, court records do not indicate if Dennis knew what the car was being used for. But seriously, who knows at this point? What Dennis did know, however, was that Gary Oliver was not alone when the car was purchased or loaned or whatever. <laughs> Dennis had accompanied both Oliver and another man named Andrew Granger to buy the car. What the fuck? Yes. Andrew Granger. We got a new player at the table. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly clear if detectives talked to Dennis right away or if this came out later. I would assume that you'd go straight to the person that the car was registered to, right? You get a hit, you go and question yeah, that person. definitely. But regardless, it was all downhill for Gary Oliver at that point mm-hmm. as police started piecing this whole tangled mess together. He was arrested that same April in Flint, and he confessed to the whole murder plot. <laughs> <laughs> he said Bob Singer had hired him, not to find a hitman, however, but to kill Howard Witkin himself. He was scared 
shitless, so he recruited his friend, Andrew Granger, which of course then led to Andrew's arrest. Andrew was apprehended by authorities while on duty as a potato chip delivery man. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> I literally Wait. cannot make this shit up, okay? Wait. Is that a legitimate career path? <laughs> yes. He delivered potato chips. To where? To, to stores. And then they set their sights on Bob Singer. Not only had Gary Oliver confirmed to authorities that Bob had hired him to murder Howard, but his accomplice, Andrew Granger, provided every tiny detail about the plot. He even showed police the moneygram that Bob had sent the boys to fund their trip home after the murder had been committed. The moneygram had been addressed to a Stuart Granger because Bob wasn't going to write down Andrew Granger. That would be a dead giveaway. So he just changed his first name. I don't even have words at this yeah. point. Andrew would later say that he'd never actually even met Bob Singer, but that Singer had made it very clear that Howard Witkin needed to die because he was a drug dealer who sold drugs to kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So it was a moral hit. Yes. <laughs> so after Gary Oliver and Andrew had gotten the car via Dennis Liquia, they loaded up the Chevy to the levee. <laughs> Just kidding. With road trip snacks. I was just joking. Don't start with that shit. With road trip snacks? Worst song of all time. Okay. And a new shotgun and headed west. Gary was always the intended shooter, but he was getting cold feet like real quick. He was so nervous about the whole thing. In fact, that he'd actually forgotten one really important thing. Bullets. Yes. (laughs) I knew it. Yes, babe. Well, slugs for a shotgun. Luckily, Andrew was a pheasant hunter. And he brought his pheasant hunting gun, complete with bullets, along too. Gary continued to waver on his decision to carry out the murder. Andrew, however, was determined to put an end to the bad man from California who had been selling drugs to kids. Mm -hmm. So they pushed along until Andrew, in the middle of his driving shift, fell asleep at the wheel, literally less than a mile before hitting the California border. And he drove his Chevy to... Shut up. (laughs) Don't, don't. Just kidding. He drove it into a ditch. (laughs) I literally cannot with these two. So they're about to approach the California border. (laughs) And Andrew, who's been driving for a really long time at this point, falls asleep and drives straight into a ditch. This is like a Coen Brothers movie. I don't know how. I actually read on IMDb, there is a movie about this. But someone needs to remake this movie because it's... It's amazing. It's amazing. The characters in this are amazing. There's so many tragic people in it. It's like a Coen Brothers. Yeah. It's like and Fargo. Fargo is very much... It's like, just sad. Inept. It's so sad. It's so yeah. pathetic. And it's like, these two guys are the worst people you could ever ask to carry out a murder. Honestly. And it, it just gets worse. Honestly. Honestly. So they did manage to get the car running again, but obviously that would not last long. The car was literally chugging along at this point, and all the stress of potentially losing their, their car, their getaway vehicle, caused Andrew to drive the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> they made it all the way to Oakland before he realized they'd effed up. Well, there was less signs in the 80s. <laughs> they were an hour in the wrong direction, over an hour in the wrong direction. When they finally made it to Howard's neighborhood to scope out the house... His neighbor had spotted him. This was the night before. Got it. So they weren't driving slowly because they were trying to find the house. It's just the car was so fucked up. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. I didn't even think about that, babe. You're so right. They said that there was a a really loud clicking noise. (laughs) (laughs) Once they got the car out of the ditch, immediately they were like, it just started clicking. Like, like heavy clicking. I didn't even put that together. You're right. They weren't scoping it out. That's probably just as fast as the car could go. No. All right. So this was that Thursday night, the night before Howard's murder, the night that the neighbor had spotted them. They had no idea, obviously. So thinking that they had successfully checked out the home of their soon-to-be victim without being seen, they decided to get some sleep. And they're fucking clicking. Yes. <laughs> dented car. When they woke up the next morning, they grabbed some breakfast and then did some sightseeing. <laughs> Yeah, you gotta work on the tan. Yeah, exactly. Go to the beach. That's right. They did some sightseeing. I'm thinking that's probably where Gary Oliver got his sick tan. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Bought some shirts. You know what? I'm from the Midwest. I don't even blame them. When I first came to <laughs> Illinois, I mean, when I first came, when I first came to California after road tripping from Illinois, I was in awe. I was in absolute awe. Everything is so different. 
from the Midwest where everything is so flat and boring. You come to California, there's mountains and hills and palm trees. It is a beautiful, you feel like you're in a different country. I think when I drove from Dallas Mm -hmm. to L.A., first time I've been in L.A., California at all, I think it just, I was afraid. (laughs) (laughs) But also, we drove to a Motel 6 in Alhambra, so you would be afraid. I was like, where's the story going? <laughs> so they did all of that. Yeah. They did some sightseeing. They grabbed breakfast, whatever. And then Andrew suddenly realized that he needed a hair comb. Okay. Um, <laughs> wait, is this, is this the 80s or 90s this or the, the 40s? This is the 80s. He needed a hair comb He's and like, some grease. listen, dude, you know what I need right now? A hair comb. You gotta look sharp. Right. So they went to Kmart, as Midwesterners do when they need hair tools. And that's when the car died. Gary was like, oh my God, what else could possibly go wrong? And Andrew's like, all right, well, I'm going to go find my comb now. And he goes inside Kmart, okay? Gary proceeded to pretend to know anything about cars. And he popped the hood and looked down trying to figure out what the F was what. And because these two absolute jabronis are literally way too lucky, an 18-year-old part-time mechanic named Tom just so happened to be in the same Kmart parking lot with his girlfriend, Heather. And they saw Gary looking under the hood of the Chevy, probably noticeably confused as hell. He was like, hey, I'll help, before he realized he couldn't help. <laughs> the car was dead. So the car he was l- he done. looked at him, he's like, this is fucked. Yeah, he's like, oh, hey, I'm a mechanic. Let me help you. And then he was like, oh, yeah, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> so instead, Tom and his girlfriend invited the boys over. And once Andrew got his comb, the mm. four headed to Tom's place. Simple times. I know, right? He's like, oh, well, you know, we are here to do a murder, but let's just go to Tom's house. <laughs> I got to tell you, though, let's, I've made friends like that before. Yeah, it's actually kind of dope. It's kind of heartwarming in the middle of this awful story. (laughs) Tom drove a 69 sky blue Cadillac, by the way. I know. Now, without a car, Gary and Andrew offered Tom a deal while the four drank beers and got super high on marijuana. (laughs) Marijuana? Yeah. On the pot? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) on pot. I also read an article that they did LSD as well. fucking sick. They live in the California dream. So Gary and Andrew offered Tom a deal while the four drank beers and got high, like I said. They were like, hey, how about you drive us to this guy Howard's house and we'll give you a brand new shotgun. Luckily, Andrew's backup pheasant gun had the bullets, so whatever. They were like, just take this brand new shotgun. It's never been used, dude. It's really nice. Take it. And Tom took the deal. Tom was also later charged in the murder of Howard Witkin. So one can assume he knew why he was driving them over to Howard's, right? Mm. All right, so now they're all liquored up and, like, super stoned and possibly high. (laughs) The three boys headed to Howard's. It was then that Andrew Granger, not Gary Oliver, hopped out of the Cadillac, and obviously we know what happened next. Granger returned to the car and told both Gary and Tom that he thought he did it. He also told them that he first shot Howard when he came to the door, and then Howard did try to get away. He slammed the door shut, tried to lock it, and that's when Andrew Granger kept shooting through the front door, as was suggested by the evidence at the scene. Now, the next morning, Gary and Andrew called Bob Singer to let him know that they thought they didn't. (laughs) Again, the fact that Andrew's not sure if Howard is dead right after, and then the next day, they reiterate when they talk to Bob and that they think they did it. It's noted multiple times in multiple articles and in the case file. It is just so telling that these guys are straight up fools. Like, they're absolute fools. I'm going to write a script to this. Also... They didn't actually do it. Bob did survive for a little bit longer, remember? He made it all the way to his kitchen. We don't actually know how long he was alive in there. Oh, man. If there's about to be a, a chopper chase right now, I'm going to be pissed. I'm trying to record a podcast. <laughs> Obviously, Singer is a fool, too, okay? So he's like, all right, well, cool. And that's when he sent the money gram for the boys to make it back home to Stuart Granger, which they did by bus. Now here we are, and four men are charged with the first-degree murder of Howard Witkin. Remember, you got Bob Singer, you got Gary Oliver and Andrew Granger, and Tom. Tom's last name is Macholek, I believe. Fucking Tom. What Mm. are you doing, dude? 
Throughout the trial, Judy stood by her husband's side, and to all who saw her in the courtroom, she was absolutely lovely. She was put together, well-spoken, and she was kind to everyone she spoke to. Bob Singer's trial ultimately would end with a hung jury. But that is far from the end of that story. Before we get into what transpired and the wild twist this story will inevitably take, let's talk about the other three jabrones, all right? Okay. Granger, who had apparently a dual trial with Singer, was found guilty and sentenced to life without parole. Gary Oliver ended up taking a plea deal, and according to reports, he was sentenced to a maximum of six years in prison. Six years, that's good it. Good deal. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, good deal. Yeah. And I swear to God, no matter how hard I tried, I could not find out what Tom's sentence was, okay? In an article by NBC, it's just mentioned that he was convicted... I could not find a single source stating what the hell his sentence actually was, but I'm going to keep looking because this story is far from over and we will have to continue it next week because after Bob's first mistrial, he was retried in January of the following year in 1982. His defense had tried so hard to allege that Gary Oliver had actually confessed to his cellmate when he was first arrested, who they brought in to testify According to the jailhouse inmate, Gary Oliver was actually approached by Howard Witkin to take out Judith, but Gary refused doing that to a woman, so Howard proposed instead he take out Bob, (laughs) okay, so that he could get his wife and kids back, the wife that he had just apparently, allegedly asked Gary to kill. (laughs) So, according to the jailhouse informant, Gary said that Howard had paid him a little bit then and said I'll pay you the rest later but I'll pay you everything before the murder but then the money never came so Gary Oliver and Andrew Granger decided to go confront Howard Witkin themselves in California like hey where's the money we agreed to do this murder we haven't done it yet but you said you'd pay us and that's what led push came to shove shot him 70 yeah. times this is great so they're saying Old, what's his Howard mm-hmm. just like called the restaurant and was like, Who works here? I got a deal for you. Well, Kill my ex wife. Yeah, no. <laughs> Apparently, he had made the proposition to them like while he was in Flint, which also sounds absolutely ridiculous. He just so happened to like, also, Howard would go to the restaurant where his wife's, his ex wife's new husband. Yeah. Owns and take his employees. The whole thing is so stupid, it's ridiculous. And then the jailhouse informant said that after that, Gary got just scared and Andrew got scared, so they decided to implicate the person that would make the most sense to police, and that would be Bob Singer. Like, the whole thing is so dumb. And honestly, (laughs) I applaud the defense because what the hell else are you supposed to say at this point? You have three convictions. The case is happening in Flint, Michigan. It is everywhere. I'm sure you have an impartial jury, which sucks, but, like, everyone knows about this, you know? That's wild, though. It's insane. The prosecution shut that theory right down by playing Gary Oliver's initial confession (laughs) that matched up with Granger's and also matched all of the evidence. So literally nobody was buying this new theory by Bob Singer's defense. Plus, the state provided even more motive for Bob to have wanted Howard killed. The singer stood to benefit from Howard's murder, thanks to an alleged $750,000 life insurance plan. There you go. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, Bob Singer was convicted of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder, and he was sentenced to life without parole. After his conviction, his devoted and loving wife, Judith, divorced him. (laughs) But that's not the end of the story. Not even close. Years later, while Bob Singer was serving his life sentence, I believe at San Quentin, everything would change when the now-convicted murderer discovered a horrifying secret. During his first and second trial, a love affair was brewing between his attorney, William C. Melcher, of Sherman Oaks, by the way, and his dearly beloved wife, Judith, which automatically called his entire trial into question. How trustworthy could his defense have been if he was, in fact, getting it on with his wife? So what, mistrial? Judith Singer was called in to testify where she confessed to the affair with Melcher, stating it all started during the first trial, but it stopped once Singer's case ended with the hung jury. 
But then it started again. <laughs> it started again during the second trial. Judith testified that the sex was mutually initiated, of course. Quote, not very many times, always at Melcher's motel room or apartment, end quote. Judith and Melcher had become extremely close during all of the litigation, and she had even helped do some paralegal work during the what trials. What the fuck? So I guess one thing led to another, and bam, they were getting it on. Melcher, however, called BS, saying that he was impotent, so obviously that couldn't happen. I'm sorry, what, his defense is like, I can't get a boner? Yeah. So wait, they didn't have an affair? I'm so confused. Well, the judge found that all evidence pointed to Melcher lying. He can get a boner. And that, yes, he can get a boner. That's a good day in court. And that he and Judith were, in fact, (laughs) engaged in an affair, and so the judge granted Bob Singer a new trial. But Bob wasn't done yet. Feeling utterly betrayed and honestly just so freaking pissed off by what had transpired during his trials and how his wife had gone behind his back and had sex with his attorney, he decided to tell police the real story about the murder of Howard Whitkin and who was really behind the entire plot to end his life. Oh, shit, it's Judith. She's such a fucking monster. (laughs) All right, and that's where we'll end because this is a lot. Oh, babe, there is so much. It is, I was absolutely and utterly shocked that I had never heard this story. I'm annoyed. Like, the last two weeks you've given me blue ball cases Mm -hmm. and you've made a case, another case, into a blue ball case. It'll be worth it. There There is a resolution in all of this. Okie doke. So that is where we will end this episode, but stay tuned next week for the conclusion. Are you excited? I'm excited about your face. You're doing the face again. It's my podcast face. I mean, yeah, I'm really upset that you didn't finish the story. Okay, so we'll be back next week with the conclusion of this story, and uh, we'll tie this bad boy up. And talk about what happened to all of these characters in the years following. I'm looking forward to part two of, like, a confederacy of dancers. Oh, my God. You're (laughs) so right, though. This should be a movie. I'm going to write the script. You absolutely should. You absolutely should. P.S. Never written a script. (laughs) P.S. Don't steal our idea, all right? We're going to write the script. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Like I said, we'll be back next week, so... We will see you then. We will talk to you then, I guess. We won't see you. If you have not yet subscribed, do it. Just do it, okay? And then, after you've done that, please leave a review and rate the show. It really does help the show, and I really, really appreciate it. Honestly, more than I could ever say. It bumps us up in the rankings and helps us get seen by more people. And these are a lot of stories that have been forgotten by most people, and they need to be heard. Because at the center of all of these is a victim, and we care about the victims enough to make fun of their dumbass killers. All right, you guys, we will be back next week. Thank you guys so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.